It's a cult Disney with oral hygiene featuring the paranoid American. This is the Occult Disney series of podcasts where we take a look under the hood and look for magical secret elements of the classic Disney movies. This is Matt Comges here. As as usual, joining us is Thomas Gorentz, the paranoid American. Hello. That's me. Hello. That's I'm excited you. about this one. We, we are going to have some cool uh, sort of hidden symbolism brought to the forefront, hopefully. Yeah, actually, the watching it, you know, I guess this one is like we think of this one as like, oh, the magical Disney movie. It's got the fairy godmother and stuff. I'm like, oh, the that magic is basically like window dressing. I mean, there's other stuff going on, I think, <laughs> but that particular flavor is just kind of like, yeah, that is just, uh, you know, twinkly stars and and a few interesting animations for the most part. I do agree with you. There was one like jumping right into that magic aspect of this. There was one thing that stood out, and that's the one of the basic premises of magic is that you tend to have to give up something from yourself in exchange for the thing that you're receiving. And in this particular instance of Cinderella, it it does feel like it's like window dressing or cheating or like they skipped over the part of like what does Cinderella have to give up? She just kind of uh, just gets all of, all of the, the benefits and there's no real sacrifice uh, from its most apparent, you know, um, just watching it. It just seems like it's just all receiving like great for her. Although, but it misses uh, out on some of that, that balance in the dynamic, I think. Although she has been living a relatively crap life for however many years we are at this point. We, we are not quite sure how long it's been since dad died. Yeah, maybe or or mom because it's a stepmother, right? Right, right. I think it was mom died, then the dad remarried, then dad died, and now she's just uh living in her her tower. Which let's be fair, the tower has a fantastic view, and uh, I, I, there's plenty. I, of... I made that same note. Like there have been people that had to go through far worse with a much worse view than what she goes through. So, like if she had like a castle wall as her view out, out of the window, you'd feel more. And also, I was like, man, there's there are some hipsters that would like pay top rent for that place now. <laughs> and and speaking of magic too, this one's interesting because uh, she can inexplicably talk with animals, which was one of the themes in a previous one. Um, but this one also, it's like some of the animals, even us as the viewers, can understand. Other ones we can. They'll just you know cheap 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 and she's like oh what's that you know timmy's done a well like she can understand exactly what the animals are saying to her which in what was it snow white that i think in snow white it kind of represented a little bit more direct of this um this feminine energy being able to communicate with nature and cinderella again it's almost like window dressing a little bit it's a little bit more superficial like she can just talk to animals because it gives a much easier reason to go into song and uh it also presents a few sidekicks and other kind of like secondary characters um to like help cinderella that don't really exist outside of the animal kingdom 
Well, apparently they were just like really doubling down on this has to have like a cat and mouse aspect, like going back like a decade before they actually made this thing. That was kind of a core tenant. Like we're, we have to Tom and Jerry this a bit for some reason. <laughs> um, that said, I, I don't know. I, I like obviously the animation's better here, but I do kind of uh, prefer Tom and Jerry <laughs> for that sort of hijink. <laughs> Yeah, it, it doesn't come across very well. Although, uh, in an in, inordinate amount of this movie, I which I didn't remember being pretty much all involved with that cat and mouse aspect, but it's it's weird, you know, like like the Cinderella story kind of comes and goes, but the real story that you're constantly following is this uh, this cat interacting with the mice and just or other like non Cinderella esque things happening. And uh, I also absolutely forgot that the cat's name is Lucifer, which, you know, was was awesome. <laughs> it made me more interested as it went. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was like, whoa, isn't that like kind of on the nose even for 1950? I don't know. Did 1950s have more of a like Satan and Lightbringer distinction or <laughs> honestly, man, the, evil? the Luciferianism goes back to the early 20th uh, century, like 1920s uh, around there you know the concept of lucifer and luciferianism and worshiping lucifer was not that far removed from even the upper echelons of society like high society so it was almost like a like a cool party thing like oh have you heard that uh matthew is is a luciferian oh let's go over to his table and talk to him you know yeah i was just wondering for the uh you know joe schmo buying a ticket in 1950 at what what they would take or is you know like at this point, you'd have like the Christian right screaming about it. You can't put name a cat loose for in a kids movie or something, right? Maybe I don't. I don't know if they okay. would have latched onto the name as much. Like Chern Chernobog would have been just as uh, offensive, right? Yeah, true. But I mean, that's one that even now would people just be like, "What? What's that?" You know. <laughs> um, and and a, a cool thing to point out for almost every villain that follows after Fantasia and Chernobog is that a lot of the Disney villain characters tend to have not necessarily horns, but the silhouette of their head implies two horns. And this actually kind of starts with the evil stepmother in this movie. If you look at the silhouette of her head, she's got her hair kind of up in these two buns. Um, but if you look at like a silhouette of Chernobog and a silhouette of almost every other Disney villain, they tend to follow. It's very uh, similar silhouette which i think is really a cool kind of easter egg yeah and i'm like we're like oh horns that's kind of evil but if you go far enough back horns and halos tend to get kind of mixed up like you find a bunch of images of of moses with horns you know which is supposed to actually suggest some kind of divinity as opposed to um being evil if you've, if you've seen uh, sort of old paintings, I think, you know, like 13th, 14th century, I'll show Moses like in sculpture thing where he's got like a little pair of horns on him. So, which, yeah, dude, dude, dude's had a party, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 party. If you ever come across out. someone with a pair of horns, you know, they know how to party. <laughs> we have to check the horns. Like, do, do you mind? To make sure <laughs> yeah. it's not just a application. <laughs> you in the back bird in that bush again. Get out of here. <laughs> um usually by this point I've, I've been like hey do a quick plot synopsis but i feel like this is a case where basically the name of the movie is like the plot synopsis like just everybody knows it already yeah and actually that's a really good point to start this on because uh cinderella is a little bit unique from all the other disney movies so far and the ones to follow in that 
A, it didn't necessarily come directly from Brothers Grimm. Cinderella predates Brothers Grimm by at least 100 years. But more likely, it predates it even farther back than that because Cinderella is also unique in that it's a story that many different cultures um, have adapted to their own. You know, like it's not always the same name, it's not always the same exact accessory, but the exact same plot line plays out across many different cultures. So this is something that's kind of like deeper in the archetype that almost everyone has heard some version of, although you could almost make an argument that at this point, modern day, most people's version of Cinderella is the Disney version of Cinderella, and they probably haven't come across it in a lot of other places. Uh, But it does predate Brothers Grimm quite a bit. And even the guy that I think that the Disney version adapted after was Charles Perrault. And even his version was just kind of like an amalgamation edited retelling of, you know, previous fairy tales that came before his time. Well, just, you know, most people in the West would, the, the flood story would, would go directly for the Noah version, but that's also, you know, one of just many, many, many. So with, with yep, different yeah. names, Pretty well, all the antediluvian, you know, mythology all kind of shares all the same beats. It's a great analogy here to like Cinderella almost. Because, you know, like Gilgamesh has a much trippier version of the, the Flood story. If you want to get, you know, get into that one, that that's way more fun, I think. <laughs> that movie a few years ago did a pretty wild version of it, though. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a really cool movie called Noah that was based off of a comic book. And I think that one was directed by Darren Arfnowski, who did. Yeah, yeah, that's one. I'm getting at, and so. I love that. That one is so such a cool uh, aspect of it. Yeah, it's, it's not a fun watch, but it's definitely a fascinating watch because everyone in that movie is just so pissed off all the time. They're they're all <laughs> they're all drinking Russell Crowe juice or something. <laughs> I, I just remember and uh, and also talking about this uh, uh, the origins of the Disney one at least it was this guy Charles Perrault and Charles Perrault was interesting because he's essentially one of the the writers or the writer of Tales of Mother Goose, which very much like Brothers Grimm. Uh, represented a bunch of folk tales that you know that were spread out through many different countries and this guy kind of compiled them all together into a really popular book uh, almost everyone's probably heard of uh, tales of mother goose so here's the guy that actually compiled that original version of it and he had i think like seven brothers and sisters which don't even get it's it's funny because they did some really impressive things in life but he kind of overshadows them. If you go to any of his siblings' pages, it's always like the leading thing is, oh, they were related to the guy that wrote Mother Goose. But one mm-hmm. of them uh, basically invented the, the whole entire field of hydrology, which is the study of water as it moves across Earth and goes you know, into the land and up into the sky and stuff. And another one basically did all the architecture for the east facade of the Louvre, and they designed the Paris Observatory. Uh, so like... He, he came from good stock, you know, like everyone in his family was doing something pretty substantial that has lasted the test of time. But Charles happens to be the most famous through his Mother Goose stuff. It's kind of like how, you know, Michael Nesmith is famous because of the monkeys, but his, his mom created like Whiteout or something, you know, seems bigger than the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> but see, oh, Hedy Lamar, I, I, I missed, I, I was trying to remember who it was and, you know, she's best known as an actress but also did like code breaking work and things like that like wild oh yeah and she she's credited for some of the concepts of uh frequency band hopping which we still use in wi-fi and almost all wireless technologies she's got like a bunch of patents i believe also her husband was like a european uh gun smuggler like her yeah her story is fascinating too man 
Yeah. And, and unfortunately, uh, Mel Brooks did her disservice because when I hear her name, the first image I, I get is um, uh, what's his name in Blazing Saddles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Headley. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I can't picture. Actually, I can picture her, too. But yeah. <laughs> um, Wasn't it like Zsa Zsa Gabor or something? I mean, you know, the 30s starlet look, right? I, I guess she was a little in the 40s, too. But um. So I'm thinking the real magic in this movie is more like, you know, kind of like law of attraction stuff. That definitely is baked into the uh the pie a bit. Absolutely. Stuff. If if you had to pick one magical uh, mechanism, I'd say that's the most prevalent one here out of all of them. And and we'll get into some of the actual symbolism that will show how right you are, I think. Now, if we go by her room, I guess it's working although you know in the the macro of her life it doesn't seem to be working very well maybe maybe she's learning the ropes of it that, that's where you say like yeah she didn't have to give something she didn't have to sacrifice but she does have to live like this somewhat submissive crappy life for however long well and also in the in the various books versus the cartoon there's you know subtle differences one of those differences is the fairy godmother herself. So in the movie, the fairy godmother is sort of the active magician. She's the one that's doing all the magic. And it's just Cinderella <clears throat> that might be just making wishes. But it's, you know, and that I guess you could say those are magical incantations or spells. And the fairy godmother represents the magic. In some of the tellings of the book and in some poems of the story, this happens under a tree. And the tree, if you're sitting down under it, and leaned back against it can sort of represent um, like Kundalini uh, essentially and sort of energy rising throughout the limbs, meaning going to all your extremities. And this also goes into the fact that in the story, she starts out with wooden shoes, which then transform into um, crystal slippers, which then in some versions finally end up as golden slippers after she gets with the, uh, the prince. So this also is this transformation from the organic, you know, wood uh, base material into this transmutation of a clear, you know, crystalline structure. And then finally gold, which is kind of retelling an alchemical process of transformation as well. Yeah. Yeah. Glass seems to be selling it short in this movie. Um, <laughs> something that did come up in the development of this movie, uh, at least according to what I was reading before it came on. Um, apparently there was, quite a bit of uh animators or writers who did want to give cinderella a bit more of a backbone make her a bit more rebellious and i i think they probably had a point <laughs> yeah i mean she's definitely spark. just she uh she very much represents like a coat hanger right like like her going to the ball and her wearing this beautiful gown and these slippers that everyone notices is very much the epitome of fashion design where the model is not meant to be looked at or even acknowledged and they're essentially just a fancy coat hanger for this beautiful gown and accessories and that's what everyone is obsessed about i mean even the prince himself he falls in love with this girl but he has no idea what she looks like he just knows about her you know fashion sense and her shoes um, which kind of reduces cinderella to again just like almost a coat hanger like you can just swap her out with any of her stepsisters, essentially. Yeah, it's like, yeah, and then 
of course, that's not enough. It's like why I once dated a girl who liked all the same bands I did, and it got really boring really quickly. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's another another good point here is that they it says they live happily ever after, but really we only see the prince and Cinderella like crystallized in time after their first date at the height of you know their attraction and allure to each other i wonder if there's ever been like an interesting follow-up of like and here's 20 years later and they're just like arguing over something and you know because this is essentially a relationship built entirely on you know first appearances and one initial interaction and then it's just like and they live happily ever after like let's let's leave him out like the other 20 30 40 years of of their life how exactly did they get together you know how did they get along yeah, I was like, oh, this should have this would have been a good early place to put some post credit sequences as we see them rip into each other. Now there are some uh, direct video uh, sequels from like two thousand two and something after that, but I, I don't even know if we need to like consider those. Except I'm just mentioning they exist, so I guess some way a little bit of cash this. grabs, a little bit of like, oh, oh you already own Cinderella one, why not own Cinderella two, three, four, and five? Well, I got one of my my regular co-hosts who who will preach the virtues of the Little Mermaid three. So, <laughs> well, yeah, but isn't that the one that gets into the Titanic or no? I don't know. I've only seen the first one. <laughs> I'm saying that he he he's preaching the virtues. I have I have not seen it. So he, he's the same guy. Who tells me Frozen two is basically an X Men film, which does make me interested in watching it, but I still haven't. So <laughs> once you get really deep into the sequels and trilogies, especially the direct to video they realize that only a small niche of hardcore people are watching these or, you know, it, like they don't have to boil the ocean and cater to every single person out there. So you find some really weird, wild experiments in those direct to video sequels sometimes like stuff that never would have, you know, floated by mm -hmm. for the initial headliner when they knew that they had to slot it for movies and get happy meal toys based on it. But then it's all of a sudden it like turns into the whiz, you know, after like uh, like a sequel two, three or four. It's just like, <laughs> oh, they're just going to make stuff up now. That's that's fine. I don't, I don't think they've gotten to too many fours. No, no. Is, is it four or five where we go into space? You know, Cinderella in space or the Little Mermaid in space. <laughs> it's got to be the space sequel somewhere down the line. <laughs> uh, but, and, and I had a note here, too, um, for the actual animation this featured one of my favorite disney artist names which is thor putnam and uh and if you look into thor who was involved in this one he was the art director for pinocchio and he was also the art director for the night on bald mountain uh slash ave maria feature that was part of fantasia so that that same guy that brought those two together uh, was here at the helm again on Cinderella. And an interesting one is that right after I think he finished doing Fantasia, he immediately joined the Navy in 42 and he did a stint in the Navy. And as soon as he got out of the Navy, I think four or five years later, he returned directly to Walt Disney and started working on Cinderella. Uh, so that's just kind of badass, like a, like a Disney animator, you know, like, oh, all right, guys, I'll, I'll see you in four years after I joined the war and, uh, you know, uh, fight some Germans and I'll, I'll I'll see you back here to work on the next big picture but that's kind of like a weird uh, dynamic here is he one of our uh, nine old men because I, I know this is about the time that definitely like the the nine I mean they're all in their 30s apparently still but they were the that's ones a good that question I mean Thor, Thor was one of the OGs I don't know if he was part of the nine I'm having a look if uh da. And I, and I also had a note here that maybe I'm I was just being overly critical for some reason on this particular viewing, 
but the animation itself and the artwork falls a little bit flat in this one. Even when you compare it to um, Dumbo and Snow White and some of the other ones that we've seen already, specifically, there's not a lot of shading either behind the characters or even as they like walk into the light or to show any kind of um, depth. I think Bambi also had a similar, very flat look to it in comparison but this one again it just it lacks a little bit of soul even the rotoscoping looks good and cinderella looks good um but but they lack any real depth throughout the entire movie and it just it maintains this cartoony fantasy feel uh that stays a little bit detached though i don't know again that might be a little bit overly critical of a movie from you know 1950 but it, it stood out to me well, Pinocchio, Snow White, and Fantasia had all those like painted backgrounds, which I'm sure were. Well, and know... this one has painted backgrounds, but but honestly, it makes it all the more stark the contrast between that flat foreground and that kind of deeper background. Apparently, some of the animators did kind of complain about the rotoscoping on this one. They felt like you know, since they had to stick to that, they had constraints that they didn't want for this one, which might be part of it. So. <laughs> It's a, and you, you could almost see the anatomy of the rotoscoping a little bit more in this one too it might not be easy for everyone to pick out that hasn't looked at like a million rotoscopes before but there's this distinct quality of the face being slightly detached from the body and the hair being slightly detached from the face and it's almost like all the different elements of the body are are animated independently and then put back together so there's a little bit of this of lack of cohesion for the whole because that's exactly how rotoscoping works is um it's not always you outlining the entire body frame to frame it's like i'm going to outline just the face and you know just the arm and then just the leg and you kind of like start putting those elements together and you can kind of see you can sort of see those building blocks and, and like where the seams lie uh when you watch this one and uh, just to throw out thor is is not one of our nine old men i got the list here so just if anyone cares it's Poor Les, Thor. Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnson, Mitt Call, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John uh, Lounsbury, Frank Thomas, Wolfgang Reitherman. He's got a good name. <laughs> he does. You know, maybe it's because Thor was an art director and not one of the direct illustrators. Uh, I'm not sure. The, yeah, these. this is the animation board, basically. Okay, so that's probably like, what it was then. It's like the Supreme Court of Disney, basically, <laughs> <laughs> if, if they need that sort of thing. Um, is where your drawings go to die. Exactly. I I was thinking we uh we talked about Snow White where she's she's almost frightened because her basically her manifestation worked out so quickly. You could kind of look at this as like a a more slow moving one. It's basically the same thing happens. Just now it takes well actually it takes forty five minutes. I made a note that nothing really happens until halfway through this movie. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and this is another one of those movies too where it's like man, um, like it it takes forever to build up, and then all of a sudden you're at the ending, and you already know what happens if you've seen the movie once, where the prince comes and they all try on the shoe. But man, that feels like shoehorned in at the very end, pun intended. But like, bam, it's like all of a sudden, oh, there's 15 minutes left in the movie. I hope they start wrapping this up pretty quickly. And then it's just like, bam, bam, bam. Yeah, yeah they wrap it up real quick. <laughs> so I, I by this point, I will say at least they're padding. Well, that's basically the cat and mouse stuff, I guess, for the most part. So it didn't feel if you take quite... that out. This is like a half hour movie, right? Yeah, exactly. But um, I, it did feel like at least integrated a little better because um. 
I, I know in Snow White, I, I said some of the segments actually stood out like, oh, they're trying to make this feature length. And, uh, you know, I, I think Bambi, we had we had that feeling a bit, too. So as Bambi big time. This one, I feel like they do a much better job of weaving the songs in. Like, it's not just all of a sudden they just burst in the song. You can kind of see like a story or something will happen and then she'll start talking about it and then she'll like her talking will become a little bit more melodic and then all of a sudden like birds come in and music starts to come in and it like blends in so then you're like okay yeah we're about to go into a song um versus some of the other ones where it's like talking talking okay song okay now back to talking um mm -hmm. so i think this one they do a really good job of uh, you know if, if you're like a really good dj you know how to like blend two songs together so it almost sounded like one song i think cinderella has some uh aspect of that you know there was much more care put into this than than bambi for sure there was a sketch comedy about 20 years ago the upright citizens brigade where they have um oh yeah this, the, the, you know i'm talking about the guy comes into this is where amy songs. poehler came from i think was upright citizens brigade that's right yeah i actually that's the the um comedy troupe i took drinking once <laughs> <laughs> as in university and I, I, I was supposed to this is, uh, pick... chicago right i think they're in a few cities but isn't their main one chicago oh uh, for upright citizens um this was actually university yeah. of georgia they were doing a show there so my my job was to ferry them from the hotel to the show take some photos of the show take them back and they want me to take them to a bar on the way back so <laughs> took it to my favorite bar huh. took took the comedy troupe drinking that was always fun but yeah they got the uh mogi pie sketch for the guys pitching disney and um you know he's like oh goodbye it's like you just made that up it's like, it took me six months to write that so you know <laughs> I, I guess they just had zippity doodah and song of the south and here we got our um bippity boppity boppity booze so. yeah but yeah it is kind of like a, like like you're mentioning like the incantations or whatever you know <laughs> and these ones are much more earwigs too or earworms i mean um that like these ones are catchy the, and I guess the two main ones I would say is uh, a dream is a wish your heart makes and bippity boppity boo. And they're, they're both just in terms of, you know, lyricism and just the songs themselves are great. I mean, they're better than anything that Bambi has to offer. I'm just going to keep, you know, shitting on Bambi here uh, <laughs> in comparison, but yeah, it's, I think they're just so much better in every single conceivable way versus some of the other previous movies. Yeah, I mean, the, the the main thing, I guess, holding this movie back a little bit is simply that our main characters and uh, well, our main character and the prince are like such absolute ciphers. So, yeah, know. it's a it's a Ken doll and a Barbie doll. I mean, you know, it's there's they have the not a lot more personality. There's not a lot more con like the ultimate conflict is that she gets locked in this room and she's not being treated very well by her you know stepmother and again if you if you read the non-disney versions that disney is based on it gets a little bit more cruel than that but not necessarily it's it's not the same level as some of the other tragedies that disney heroes have to go through i mean what happens if david bowie's goblin king shows up the prince is running off with him <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the way i see it at least <laughs> what was that uh it was um I was seeing a meme. It's like a day or two ago. It's like, oh, it, it, like your sexuality or whatever. It doesn't matter what they teach you in kindergarten. It matters how you respond to Labyrinth and David Bowie when yeah. you're a child. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. So, um, oh man, the one dude, the, the the king, the duke or whatever, 
he he really he's given the chance to like make his own title and flubs it i mean isn't that just kind of like the most natural story ever that that actually i think i relate to the most <laughs> yeah i'm just like he he let that pass him by he's like oh where is she what do you want that to be your title i, I want to be like what the man who would be king of the popes or something that'd be great <laughs> <laughs> again that was just a little bit deeper than they they had in mind for this particular movie yeah it was just you know when i was watching it's like oh he he really missed that um the king is definitely uh trying to push his his son into doing it as hard as he can (laughs) yeah it comes across as like he thinks his son's like a loser and i guess this is the version of like go get a job but it's just like you know go marry a princess son yeah this is where i I guess i got the most the snarkiest with my notes with the the king just wants to watch his kid bang just like steven tyler and armageddon (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we just did that on our podcast. Man, it's creepy. Dad's like singing about her getting on with Ben Affleck. That's that's weird. <laughs> um, the sisters' names are weird because I feel like Anastasia is a perfectly. I mean, well, it's got the whole like czarist, you know, like Russian Revolution stuff behind. It. But it's a, it's a decent enough name. And then the other one's like Drizella. That's that's a terrible name. What's up with that? When and in the movie, they kind of make them look a little bit goofy. They give them like big noses to to portray them as not being very you know pretty compared to Cinderella. But in the stories, they are they're basically as attractive as Cinderella is. And the only thing that can tell them apart is that glass slipper. So I thought that was an interesting thing where it makes sense. You know, obviously the aesthetically, you want to make the villains look different than the leading character, uh, and then making them look a little bit uglier and goofier kind of just helps that cartoony yeah yeah exactly um but i'm but i think that was an interesting element that they got lost in the translation between story to movie well also just the the you know how twisted are you on the inside right the idea is they're relatively maybe their beauty is skin deep but then they're kind of nasty under the surface is is the idea although then here we got cinderella who's like nothing under the surface so (laughs) yeah it's just like cardboard and you know vanilla flavored cardboard behind there and and you mentioned the names Cinderella. I found one interesting interpretation um, that not in the Perot version, but in another old version of Cinderella, they mentioned that her name was Ella. Um, you know, just normally, but she it, it got transformed into Cinderella because she was always covered in ash and soot from her, you know, her menial day to day work inside this, you know, this horrible tower hence you know the name cinderella so it's like ella covered in ash and soot that makes sense no when i started the movie last night and it just came up on the screen i'm thinking oh cinder okay i guess that i mean that makes sense it's a relatively uh obvious cruel joke to make towards someone i suppose <laughs> and, and i had some other kind of higher level uh observations on this one the, the main one being that if you were to retell this story and you didn't call it cinderella and you just loosely adopted it to like a modern theme and took a lot of the magic out this is a story about a a woman catfishing a ceo you know this is someone that goes and presents themselves as something they're definitely not and they're specifically targeting a high profile high worth individual so that they can like latch on and get that money. I mean, this is Cinderella. Essentially, if you were to reshoot this in 2022 as a live action, she's just a gold digger. This could be an episode of the con with Whoopi Goldberg narrating about, you know, 
how this poor prince got swindled by uh by this you know this gypsy girl or something yeah well it's like what's in a name you know because um i talk a lot of sci-fi films and we're like would the would the kind of recent total recall and robocop films be better if they simply weren't called that <laughs> you know just yeah, yeah just name. let them stand on their own yeah like robocop just call it drone you know and then <laughs> now we don't have to associate it with the older movie which you know verhoven movies didn't really have big problems so it's like you don't have to remake them but you can do something new sure um or, or other movies where you're like uh this could you know feels a little bit like an old franchise i call it the rock a james bond movie that's always a fun one to do <laughs> <laughs> works for me at least you know I, I, then you have to deal with the fact that james bond's been languishing in alcatraz for 30 years but eh, whatever i can do that <laughs> And you've got the inverse of that too, where where people will make a movie and then after it's been shot and edited, someone will be like, "Hey, we should call this American Psycho 2 or something." And nobody involved in the actual production of the movie ever thought it was going to be called the sequel to something. That that is true. I think American Psycho 2 was originally shot as an entire, you know, its own thing, and then when they went to release it, they were like, "Man, this is going to flop unless we we do something." So they just kind of slapped that title on there, hoping that anyone that saw American Psycho 1 would be interested. Uh, and sure enough, you know, people were like, what the hell is this? This has nothing to do with American Psycho. It's like the uh, the mockbusters, you know, like, hey, maybe all the Transformers have been like rented. So here's Transmorphers. So I, I guess <laughs> they're I just banking on someone that, that forgot the name of the movie between the time they saw it and the time they go to rent it, you know, or or they were in a rush and they just didn't read the, the box properly. So um, I, I they, do they plan... go home with snakes on a train. They didn't realize that it was snakes on a plane. I have heard snakes on a train includes like voodoo and stuff. So it could be good. Uh, I, I actually... yeah, that's usually an asylum move. I think asylum pictures usually oh, is yeah, the ones that... that do that, you know, yeah, like... that's that's their bread and butter. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, again for the sci-fi one that's kind of been on my mind to do like a mockbuster month you know and actually like watch <laughs> like four of these over a month and and, and do those i mean I, again cinderella um you can use the name because it's nobody owns it right so there's all those super low rent you know five dollar budget versions of cinderella you can get at the supermarket <laughs> oh there's and there's no shortage of different cinderella movies out there if, if you you know filter out the disney version there's all kinds of you know dating back to the early 1900s even yeah yeah it's one of the first stories that was filmed and 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 you can go for another disney version now that's been part of their live action <laughs> run hasn't it <laughs> it has yeah which um, i i not i mean i what did i see i saw the jungle book i saw maleficent and then i kind of like why am i watching these the lion king is just like why did they even make that it's just animated. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm with you on that. It's like, why make an inferior version of something that everyone already loves? I mean, you know, you're not going to catch lightning in a bottle twice, essentially. One, I mean, we're on a little bit of a tangent here, but man, the, the Cruella movie is a great example of something that, in my opinion, was a successful adaptation because they didn't just remake, uh, the, you know, 101 Dalmatians. They, they kind of like took a completely different approach, showed a different backstory and did it in live action in a way that made it its own thing that was, you know, worth watching and not just a retelling where, you know, every single story beat uh, before it happens. Like uh, in terms of Cinderella, again, I didn't watch the live action remake, but I assume they just had to add a bunch of like B plot or something. 
Maybe, uh, do I have more cats? I don't know. I've so, seen it, although I, I decidedly just didn't watch any of the the remakes. I just watched the classic one as I was coming up with my notes here. Because this is another one of those movies that, as a as a forty year old single, uh, not single, but a forty year old man without children, um, like I don't have any reason in the world to ever pop on the Disney adaptation of Cinderella and watch it through its entirety from beginning to end. You know, like it just never would come up in like the things that would happen in a normal day for me. So it was interesting sitting down and actually watching this thing and taking notes. Yeah, I, I was noting though, um, like. I got these pink Blu-ray cases, right? And I did note Cinderella was in the the secondary case, meaning when my daughter was very young, we did not watch Cinderella as much. <laughs> uh, it sounds like there's some good taste that runs in your family. Right, right. So, you know, the, the A-game one has, has Dumbo and Pinocchio and Snow White, but I had to go to the, the secondary case for Cinderella. So I, I think Bam... I'm glad to hear that, man, because honestly, like, I, I wholeheartedly agree with with uh, Dumbo, Pinocchio, and Snow White being above this one in so many different ways. Um, I'm and, just... and another one, too. Like, there, There's some things that, that irritate me about this story in particular, not to take it out on Snow White in particular, but uh, there's, there's that whole catfish scenario, which I think it is a good representation of this movie, but on the back of that catfishing is just this fascination with wealth and aesthetics. Like, there's not... It's not like anyone's trying to do something for the greater good or overcome some personal, you know, weakness and have this like grand story arc. It's just like I'm poor. Oh, there's a rich guy. I want to marry that rich guy so I too am rich and have these nice things in life. And that essentially is how it pans out as well. Um and and it also has this unjustified rags to riches story. And I mean, rags to riches stories are fun ones, especially for kids. But it, again, it's it kind of hammers in that materialist um, aesthetic version of rags to riches. And, and A is that I don't trust real rags to riches stories when you hear them in, in real life. I always think like, yeah, someone was funding that, you know, like someone <laughs> was bankrolling that rags to riches story for a reason. And what was their purpose? But the other aspect of it, too, was that, you know, rags to riches in what and are we talking clothing here are we talking um being covered in cinder and ash versus getting to wear ball gowns that you know that if you look at the silhouette like there's a corset involved there's a lot of uncomfortable <laughs> clothing um and like submissiveness implied in that whole rigmarole so i don't know it's 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 weird because the rags to riches here is almost like going from freedom into going into some kind of you know like you know slavery of modern society of once you become that princess like guess what you're wearing a corset for the rest of your life you're probably wearing those uncomfortable glass slippers the rest of your life you might be thinking back to simpler times when man i wish i all i had to do was dust the tower and wear my nice comfortable flats and have that fantastic view from the tower so yeah. <laughs> yeah. i mean you want the real life version of how this rolls down is is that princess die <laughs> that didn't end well on multiple yeah, yeah, they, levels yeah they, they get into a crash in a tunnel followed by paparazzi but and uh, i mean that and the what 10 years of preceding scandal you know that's that's how the cinderella story tends to pan out in the end especially when they you know maybe they'll get lucky and they get along but there's a pretty high chance they're going to find some major personality problems in between each other <laughs> well for for all the hollywood directors that are listening to this podcast and stealing our ideas the uh 
the Cinderella rags to riches story, but painting her as an evil gold digger would have a fun spin to it, I think. <laughs> oh, uh, the other spin I'd like to add, all, all the Prince ones is a beard. <laughs> he's he's uh he's already got an affair with a coachman he needs to you know find some 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 smoke screen for that <laughs> yeah he need, he needs like the 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 romantic fence for that relationship right that's that's the beard yeah so yeah make make cinderella a gold digger and um and that that's the prince's role and there you got a nice modern movie i guess <laughs> maybe uh, let me see if I got any. Oh yeah, we got some proto chipmunks in this. I thought that was fun. You know, I kept I'm, I made that note too, man. That there was some singing again. that absolutely reminded me of Alvin and the Chipmunk. I even made a note here that just says Alvin. <laughs> oh, I was just listening to a, a Pat Oswald comedy album where he's like, "Yeah, we used to we used to slow it down, so it sounds like a bunch of bored guys just singing Christmas songs and monotone <laughs> Christmas time, and then then like Satan comes and Alvin <laughs> play it at that that slow. If you play your forty five at thirty three for those with functioning turntables, <laughs> that uh, there was another album, um, uh, the Super Furry Animals. They put out an album. It, it looked, you know, it's on large vinyl, but you actually were supposed to play it forty five. And I, I was getting wasted. And I think I listened to it three times before I realized that. It's like, man, this is a weird album. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Well, actually, a lot of a lot of the recent releases of high fidelity albums come out on a, a full size, but it's run at forty five just for the higher fidelity. Yeah, this was I think two thousand eight, so it's probably about when they started doing that. So I I got. I think MoFi is pretty big with those. Yeah, I got kind of. I, don't, I, I now I have a bunch of vinyl, but no turntable. So <laughs> I sent all my it, vinyl. It's, uh, Japan, worth, but it's, it's worth investing in, man. If, yeah, if yeah. you've got the vinyl ready, because man, the vinyls what takes up all the freaking room. So true, true. Now I keep I keep spotting them. I really should take the plunge sometime, but have not have not done that yet. So, but yeah, I definitely had a few years of of wanting wanting to vinyl it. Um, I guess I should ask if you if you want to just have a. a quick look over your notes and see what we've missed yeah i've, I've got a couple uh, little mini punchlines. one is that uh in addition to the prototypal um alvin and the chipmunks kind of singing i also really feel that some of these mice look like slowpoke gonzalez uh from looney tunes and i'm not sure which one came before the other but there is absolutely a likeness between the two um and do, do you remember slowpoke gonzalez at all who is Speedy Gonzalez's cousin from Mexico. Um, and he's like kind of like a drunk, drunker, fatter, sleepier version of Speedy Gonzalez. But man, he he looks so damn close to mm-hmm. some of the mice in this movie. Now that you're mentioning it, I, I do remember. I was like, wait, what is he? Speedy? He's not Slowpoke. But yeah, yeah, now I remember Slowpoke. I feel like I feel like Speedy Gonzalez was a little bit later. So it might have this Probably. might have actually been first. I feel like Speedy was like a a fifties thing, you know, kind of like they're related. Twilight. Anyways, the the mice and Cinderella and Slowpoke Gonzalez <laughs> share some DNA somewhere. I don't know where it is, but uh, you're, you're thinking uh, the fat one, Gus. There, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and and actually another one too. Almost has the the same cadence. Uh, I mean, the, he doesn't have the thick Latin accent like Slowpoke does, but um, I don't know that I I couldn't not see it constantly, so I had to make that note for myself. Uh, I had another note here. If the birds can make her bed, why can't they just do all of her chores for her? Um, 
you know, like, like towards the end of the very beginning when she's doing that song and as she leaves the room, the birds pull up the sheets and they fluff the pillow and stuff. And I'm just thinking like, is that the only thing that they chip in for? Like, it seems like all the other horrible tasks that she's, you know, has to deal with, like how come those animals aren't doing some cool, like sword in the stone, you know, magic for her and just doing her job. Maybe the sisters have some buckshot rifles that they like to take yeah. out on the bird. <laughs> and they keep taking them out. And and also, if you notice, her sidekicks here are all um, like undesirable animals. They're rodents and they're, you know, lizards and reptiles and stuff. Um, I'm ignoring the birds here purposefully because they don't make my point. Uh, and then no, also they, they the do. cat, I, Lucifer. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I assumed her room sounds like bird shit. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. Yeah. She has to deal with all the bird shit in the room. But and and even if you include the cat, right? So you've got birds, lizards, and rodents that her sidekicks, and then Lucifer is the pet of the mother, and all of her sidekicks are the natural prey of Lucifer the cat, uh, which just kind of I I think if anything, man, like Lucifer represents evil way more than the stepmother and the sisters do, just by the name and by the actual impending doom of this cat that could kill all of her friends, all of her magical friends that she can talk to. Uh, so that one was kind of interesting for me. Um, there's also a really weird sense of scale. So in that same scene where the birds are making her bed, it's like, okay, so if their bed's that big and the bird's about that big, but then it shows them like dipping a sponge into a bowl of water and like drying it out and stuff, you know, just like doing other stuff. And in that part, the birds are like a tenth of the size that they were in the previous scene. And I don't think this was like a magical thing. This was just like a very um, easy oversight in the art direction, I think. You know, damn it, Thor, this is why you weren't part of the original nine is overlooking <laughs> crap like this. But it, it just looked really weird. It was like, oh, all of a sudden these birds went from like the size of a baseball to like the size of a dime uh, based on the scale here. So there was a little bit of inconsistency there that that kept taking me out of it a little bit um there's all we get to see a little bit of of bare naked skin uh cinderella's changing we see like her back and her profile which felt a little bit risque for (laughs) 1950s and probably inspired all sorts of rule 34 stuff to follow soon after (laughs) um so that was a, a little glimpse and then let's see what else here oh and there's a part where she goes and and they find a um, a mouse in a trap and is this gus that they find in the trap i think i think it's it's like the dumb one essentially yeah, yeah. that they, doesn't know anything um and I, I just remember making a note of like what kind of trap is that because i'm pretty sure in the time period of this like a mouse trap would not have been a benign thing that's like oh the, the mouse is still like totally healthy it would have been <laughs> absolutely mangled but also what trap is this legitimately like what was the purpose of setting that particular trap that just catches the mouse and then it leaves you to do something with it i don't know i think it's more like bait you know lucifer's bait not so much a trap i mean that, that's a trap too but not it wasn't a mouse trap as much as bait for a mouse and then lucifer comes in for the kill because cinderella's got to com- get it above out of his paw right so <laughs> that could and then be- there's there was a quote in this movie that i i like because the the context was like it was being serious um and it was cinderella telling someone else but they're saying you better get rid of those dreams like you need to change your dreams so in one case it's like a dream is a wish the heart makes and there's nothing as pure as a dream if and you know these things that you want 
if it's something that aligns with what Cinderella wants, but if it's something that Cinderella doesn't want, it's like, oh, you better get rid of those dreams, you know? So I thought <laughs> that was an interesting sort of hypocrisy that just stuck out like a sore thumb. Prince is going to learn about that little, you know, bit of a cognitive dissonance <laughs> yeah. six months down the line. Yeah, when, once the honeymoon's <laughs> over, man, let's see how happily ever after they really are, right? I, I, I also liked her non-sequitur talking about Gus again, where he's like, I'm going to name you Octavius. Your nickname is Gus. Like, what? <laughs> Why don't you just name him Gus? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was there was just yeah, non sequitur is a good way to put it. Like, why why did that line exist? Why is that name that? Um, yeah, it was an interesting kind of thing to shoehorn in there. Oh, the the other thing I did want to bring up a little more on a um I guess a proper angle is I guess the fairy godmother is basically like a a daemon, you know, I'm spelling it like the Greek way, like D-A-E, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like the, the the Linux kernel service that's running, right, right. But you know, it's in the right night. That's basically the same as a demon, right? Just can be good or bad. So, <laughs> yeah, and and honestly, the the fairy godmother here has like those cool rules of like everything expires at midnight and everything, which really does mean that this is purely an illusion that that Cinderella's been putting on, and she realizes that it's all a big facade, and she's just putting on this act um which is kind of like weak magic right like compared to all the other magic that's going on in this movie and previous movies like i mean she can talk to birds for for uh for all you know intents and purposes here what a great headliner of like woman knows how to talk to birds no one else in this movie uh implies that they can talk to the animals the same way that she can she's she's old enough that she could join the traveling road show and not make a mess of it like pinocchio right (laughs) <laughs> she can be a, a sideshow freak <laughs> so and and i've got some um notes broken down here into some of the different symbolism so uh I'll, we'll end on the glass slipper because i have the most notes on that and i think you even had a note of like i hope there's something symbolic about these damn slippers uh there is in fact there's a lot of stuff i don't know how much uh gets attributed to the disney story overall but there's a lot of cool stuff that we can poke about there's also some elements of the gown, but I want to start on the pumpkin because the pumpkin was really interesting because there's a an, an really old book called the Dictionary of Symbols. And in the Dictionary of Symbols, it describes a pumpkin as being a link between the upper and the lower worlds. And it also represents the concept of inversion, which regulates all the dichotomies and dualities of the universe, life and death and sorrow and joy and rags and riches um and and the pumpkin in particular like outside the context of this movie is known as this uh this particular item that represents that link between the two worlds uh because it's you know it's getting all of its nutrients from underground but it's growing above ground so it's got this like inherent link and what better of a vehicle a literal vehicle <laughs> that Cinderella gets into and herself um kind of transports into a completely different world so her entering the pumpkin and the pumpkin transforming into a, a literal pumpkin and then into this sort of like surreal uh angelic you know transportation device that brings you in another world just the act of getting in that and going with it on this this travel it transforms the person that's getting into it in this case it's kind of cinderella and it's it's really there's a really cool and deep link here that I wish I had more time to get into and like all the origins of this pumpkin symbolism, but this pumpkin symbolism predates the story of Cinderella itself. 
Uh, so it's it's hard to pretend that this link, you know, wasn't intentionally added there for some, you know, uh, deeper storytelling reason that doesn't come across as easily in the Disney movie because it just seems like an arbitrary, oh, you know, that pumpkin looks big enough that it could be a carriage and that's why they picked the pumpkin. But very likely there was a much deeper reason why the pumpkin in particular was picked for this. It's probably also worth knowing that once everything transforms back, the pumpkin is instantly smashed. Like, uh, oh, yeah, I guess implying that you you can't return back to that dream world in the same vehicle that you used before. Granted, it would have been much more horrific if we, you know, like mutilated the, the horse or the mice. So we don't want to see them get smashed. <laughs> so I guess that's why it was the pumpkin. But yeah, <laughs> but it, yeah, like and, it says, that dream's over. And the the fact, horse is a, was a good note here because I didn't take this note down, but I've always thought this, that like the the horse before the transformation and after the transformation um, he goes from like a goofy looking animal into like this handsome carriage, you know, carriage driver or something. Um, but like, why, why would a horse turn into uh, the human? Um, I don't know. It, it was just this, this very weird sort of mechanic to it because also the horse was like her friend essentially in like normal world. Yeah. Why can't the horse be a horse? You need a horse. Why are the mice horse? It's weird. Yeah. Uh, well, and I not guess... just that, but it, the horse goes from being like a friend that she talks to and like, you know, and hangs out with to like the guy, like, don't look at the driver. You know, he becomes like the limo driver. That's a very impersonal relationship all of a sudden. And I just thought that was interesting. I guess kind of maybe he's kind of an NPC as a person, you know, not not yeah. enough <laughs> yeah. sentience to really work it out that way or something like that. Yeah, even <laughs> even though the horse technically is probably the smartest animal she interacts with, all the other animals are like more leading of sidekicks. Um, one bit of, I don't know if there's anything to this or not, but, um, the, the wallpaper inside the house, I kind of like assumed it would be like all fleur-de-lis and you do see one or two fleur-de-lis, but the actual wallpaper is kind of like this weird, like multi corkscrew, like bottle opener looking thing. Do you know the design I'm talking about? I, I didn't notice that. And I'll have to rewatch that and look for okay. it. Okay. But yeah, I like, cause the fleur-de-lis has a lot of you know symbolism and stuff beyond it and they didn't go with that they went with a different image so i thought that was kind of interesting and um uh, especially since this is based on the french uh version of the tale so the florida lee would have made sense in this context so that was the thing i was like i, I don't have an answer but i was like why did they choose this other design then and uh there is something like i think the stepmother is like standing at like a a a post on the stairwell and it does have a Florida Lee. So, you know, I did use them, but yeah, there's just this other design also. Cause I was watching the Disney view thing, which has, you know, it like pads out the sides of the screen. So a lot of time it was using that image uh, on the sides of the screen. Oh yeah. So it was probably but standing out a little bit more. That's exactly. Um, but going back on, on, on your trip, man, we mentioned the pumpkin. What was, what was next? Something between that and the slipper, I suppose. Uh, the the gown. So the gown is another example of of just classism. And we mentioned before how Cinderella is essentially like a, a fashion model. Like she's just the uh, um, like this really nice looking coat hanger that you put the dress and you put the stuff on and everyone admires the stuff and they're not admiring the coat hanger. Um, and and again, to like reconfirm this, the prince doesn't even know what she looks like. Uh, you know, just by looking at her face or talking to her or anything, all he knows is what the gown looks like and if the slipper fits or not. Um, and again, this this gown plays into this. And, and I found, too, in one of the older versions of this gown, 
um in the movie it's kind of made out of almost like glass like it matches her the rest of her outfit so there's almost like this blue transparent uh sheen to it in the in the cartoon that makes it look like the gown has some kind of glass element but it also is essentially made out of like gold and silver uh, from certain aspects in the older stories they share that it's usually made out of of pearls and gold and silver and like jewels encrusted in it but there's also some versions where it's satin and the satin has some of the symbolism that the the cartoon doesn't necessarily portray and that's this two-sidedness that also just the story of cinderella herself kind of tells where she presents herself to be this like shiny flashy um like really impressive person that just stands out everyone's like oh you know where this princess come from but in reality it's this like uh, more mundane rags um you know servant type of girl and again this represents that aspect of satin that depending on what angle you look at it it can look nice and shiny or it can kind of look a little bit matte and dull um so i thought that was kind of a cool symbolism that exists in the story itself and not necessarily the cartoon so it makes me think of a john waters book role models where he's talking about a fashion designer he really likes because he'll It'll look like a nice, normal, sporty jacket, but like one button's the wrong color or like it looks great from the outside, but the inside's (laughs) like lined with like rat fur. (laughs) So I mean, maybe that's what her gown's like. It's nice on the outside, has some rat fur on the inside because they had to get it's it's just lined with rags and and rat fur. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Uh, But but yeah, the the gown here uh, just kind of reconfirms some of the superficial element of this and then that leads into the most symbolic of all and the thing that essentially defines the story of Cinderella, which are the glass uh, slippers. Okay. On with the slippers then. <laughs> so, so what did you have? Cause you had some, some fun kind of like ranty notes on it, um, which led you into like, Hey, I hope there's more to this. So I'll get to the more to it, but I want to hear some of your, your, uh, your kind of uh, observations. Oh, um, let's see. What so the moral of the movie is that large-footed women suck. Okay, we, we got that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that I do find it just um, fun how they show such a ridiculous, like you know, their feet are like never going into that slipper. Um, once we see one shatter, I'm definitely like, this seems like a dangerous thing to wear. You mentioned like, oh, maybe it should be like crystal. I'm like, that makes a little more sense. But either way, you're wearing some pretty uncomfortable shoes. You're gonna end up with some like notable blisters the next day so maybe it's the impracticality of it which really sticks out like there's just like no reason you would wear these you know like uh in the 80s or whatever girls who wear those jelly shoes so they kind of look like glass slippers in the end but they were you know plastic so <laughs> and they're probably way more comfortable and way more comfortable yeah just the idea like walking around dancing in these it's just yeah it's, and, and all, how she loses a shoe and doesn't notice till she gets home that's also kind of weird you think you'd notice if you lost a shoe <laughs> She's probably relieved. She's like, oh, wow. Why, why does one of my feet just feel so much more comfortable than the other one? I'll figure it out later. The other one has like needle pricks of glass into her foot. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that's where I'm like, man, I hope there's some decent symbolism here because practically so, so there is. nothing there, going. <laughs> the, there is some actual symbolism, whether, you know, whether it was implied in the movie itself or not. But I think in the story, all this is kind of implied in, in some subtle ways. So the slipper, we can kind of break down into three main components um or or sort of like ways of representing it one is that it's made out of glass or we'll say crystal whatever it is it is um both fragile perhaps um and 
and being fragile dangerous you know like what if you did smash it while you were wearing it uh i mean there goes your achilles tendon right like you're just never gonna walk again because you had to to look fancy at the ball so there's this element of danger and risk and fragility all combined into one which you know that's kind of sexy right it's like the, the danger and the allure um of this thing then there's the transparent element of it which kind of represents not just the purity of Cinderella and kind of representing her as this, you know, pure spirit, but also which which is which is cool. We'll get into in a second too. Is that that transparency represents kind of like truth, um, like the ultimate truth. Like you can't lie about this slipper, uh, not just because it's transparent, but because also they they have to put their feet into it. Which again, it's like you can't you can't lie about this slipper. Like either you fit into it or you don't. And then again, the slipper itself, just as the aesthetic and the shape and the form, that kind of represents um, the elegance and the beauty because it's not just, you know, like it's not a it's not a clog, right? And it's not a crock. It's like a freaking nice looking kind of like a high heeled um, shoe to it. So not only does it imply this elegance and beauty, but it also implies, man, whoever's putting this thing on is willing to submit themselves to uncomfort and pain and just um just a general sense of submissiveness for you to even put this thing on let alone dance in it for hours so all of these elements of it uh sort of imply you know purity and truth and justice and danger and fragility um but also this like fitting into norms and this allure into the wealth and then uh, one of the other things that didn't make it into the cartoon from the book, which is really interesting, is that when the prince actually starts going around and having um, the stepsisters wear this, again, in the books, they look just as beautiful as Cinderella does. So if you had all three in a lineup, you wouldn't necessarily pick Cinderella over the other two in the movie you might have because they intentionally draw them a little bit goofier. So in the book, the only thing that really can tell them apart is whether or not their feet fit into this shoe and in the book one of the sisters i think cuts her big toe off so that it can fit in and the other one starts slicing chunks of her heel off so that her foot can fit in um, but even as they try and they mutilate themselves and they you know they they maim their feet to get it to fit into this particular shape it still is obvious that it's not like a perfect fit um and this is just all going to show of like look at what these women were willing to do like just maim and mutilate themselves just to fit into this mold so that they can you know be this gold digger of like achieving wealth and riches through marriage again like none of this is being done for any kind of like ultimate greater good it's just like let's get out of here um and and to point out too that the stepmother and the stepsisters are not necessarily poor and destitute. Uh, the the treatment that they give Cinderella is entirely imposed upon her. So they don't necessarily need to be like raised out of abject poverty the same way that Cinderella needs to be. So it's like they just want to go from being higher upper class to like upper upper class with uh, the prince. Um, whereas Cinderella, it actually represents this transformation from the very bottom to the very top, essentially um they do and then, mention uh, in the uh, opening narration though that this house is in decline basically like it still has i guess a fair amount of upscale to it but um yeah they said since the father has died this the basically things have been going they could downsize and and be pretty well off you know what i mean if they just yeah, like yeah, change their change their spending habits the like like the 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 disparity between 
how Cinderella is treated in the clothes that she wears versus the clothes that her stepsisters wear. And the fact that they're even part of society where the prince would come to their house and knock on the door. Like they're not living in, you know, in like piss buckets or anything. Uh, and then, and I had a final note here, which was just the, this, this glass slipper thing. I couldn't get a comparison of like OJ putting on the glove. Like if the, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit kind of sense to this where it's like, what if uh Cinderella, like what if her feet were just, you know, bloated that day? She just had like extra water weight in her feet. Um, since the the prince obviously can't tell her between her personality and her face, just the dress and the slipper, like would she have just been screwed? You know, if she was like a little bit bloated that day or what? Yeah, and I mean, a shoe's probably going to fit more than one woman. I mean, we do have shoe stores, you know, that sell standard you know sizes. So <laughs> he might have. <laughs> so and so if if you discount the fact that it could potentially fit more than one person. Uh, the slipper itself does represent um, justice and absolute truth. This is like the judge and the jury. Like you can't lie to this slipper because it's transparent. It's clear. It's pure. But also the form of it um, is what makes everything just. So even if the sisters lied and they try to cut their toe off and the heel off and, you know, did everything they could to portray themselves as something they're not, uh, they, they can't lie to that slipper. Although again, like there's there's a little bit of um contradiction here because like what who's lying the the most? Like a sister cutting off a toe so it can fit into a slipper, or Cinderella saying that's my slipper. Oh, but by the way, like the the horse wasn't real, the gown wasn't real, like where did the slippers even come from? Like that's all magic. None of that even actually exists. It's all just like a figment of imagination at some element. And my feet smell like cured rat meat. <laughs> but that is, I, I, I ruin a lot of my movies just by thinking about what it would smell like in any given scene so <laughs> <laughs> yeah what would that glass zipper smell like after dancing for a few hours and just like there's nowhere for the sweat to go out to right it just kind of pulls up and i'm um, thinking even you know the fancy ball it might have like manure from the streets wafting in you know so <laughs> it is it is yeah i don't i don't think uh ago. like I don't think like um, universal plumbing was introduced uh, in the time period of this. So you're not wrong, man. <laughs> there was there was probably all sorts of fecal matter on those glass slippers. <laughs> yeah, that's a good ending for the movie. <laughs> um, I, I guess we'll get ready to wrap up. But did you have any other other big points for this one? Uh, just just my leading one, man. This this could have been an episode of the con that you just watched at you know prime time over dinner about someone catfishing a rich CEO. Uh, it just happens to take place in a more fairy tale sort of scenario. But man, this is the ultimate catfish story. <laughs> and and you can't really get behind Cinderella because there's there's barely anyone there. So I, I would say that's the biggest flaw here. Like you mentioned, the, the animation's maybe a little more streamlined. Uh, you know, once we get to 101 Dalmatians, it's going to be a lot more streamlined. But uh, still get a, you know, as far as the animation, we, I think we're still getting, you know, pretty, pretty, close to top dollar here but yeah the pacing of the movie is good it's just yeah the characterizations are just like weird or lacking and there, there's also never a sense of danger or threat or death uh, you know like like pinocchio had pleasure island and you know the whale and so many scenes where it, it feels like you know you as a viewer or the protagonist are gonna die and there's nothing that even come even in you know snow white there's the poison apple and there's 
um, all sorts of scary scenes of like witches and, you know, and creatures being conjured. But in this one, it just lacks it. Like the worst thing that happens is that her mom is really, really mean to her and makes her do some really boring chores. And that's kind of the the limit of it. You know what I mean? Like it, it almost feels like there would be more invested in here if we saw, you know, if, if you actually saw the stepsister cutting her toe off to make sure that Cinderella can't get this dream that she wants like that, even that little extra kind of morbid detail would kind of be like, Oh man, she's really living in this toxic sort of environment. But you know, from the outside in looking at it, it's like, man, she's got a great view. She can talk to animals. And I know that like, it makes it sound like her job's really bad, but like the worst thing that she did was had birds make her bed. You know what I mean? Like there's not a lot. And like, she sweeps the floor and stuff it doesn't seem all that bad in comparison to, you know, like my mom getting shot in front of me and the forest being set on fire. Yeah. I I think part of us doing these, the series of podcasts is that we're not you know, trying to say, no, we're, these aren't just like kids films, but now I'm going to phrase this by saying every good kids film needs something to scar you. <laughs> and this think. one's missing that it is, it's missing <laughs> one element that it could have been a little bit more adult or scarier just high stakes, I guess. Like, there's nothing at all in this movie that raises the stakes, other than maybe she doesn't get to catfish the the guy that she was trying to catfish. Yeah. Also, by the way, her being like, "Oh, I have the other slipper," seems like way more of a. Uh, I don't know. That just seems to carry a lot more weight than my foot fits in the slipper. Like, I have the <laughs> other one, you know. <laughs> Although, how they know the other one's broken, they can't compare anymore. <laughs> I guess I got a good photographic memory. The Duke has a photographic memory. That must be it. <laughs> okay. I guess we'll wrap this one up for today. So what what are you up to? You got some, any comics pumping out soon? Uh, yeah. So, so recently we finished up the chosen one Kickstarter, which was successful. And I don't know if you, I don't think many people know this, but as a publisher, there is a worldwide paper shortage, which sounds silly, but it is absolutely true. I guess they're using all of those uh, byproducts for making toilet paper to avoid the next big toilet paper shortage. But there is now a paper shortage, which makes printing comics and uh, and other stuff take a little bit longer, a little bit more expensive. So uh, anyways, I just got word back that we're getting the large print run for the chosen one finished up and I should have that in the next week or two. And we're currently in production on the chosen one issue two. And uh, we're going to soon be starting up on issue three. So that's a, a pretty big focus. And then also I've got a game that probably won't even be out by the time someone hears this, but um, it's called Lucifer lives in lower Manhattan and it uh, takes place in the 1940s. Um, and it's kind of like a visual novel game that uh, you should definitely look out for soon. So that's, that's what's been on my plate so far. And other than that, you can, check me on paranoidamerican.com and at paranoidamerican on Instagram and just kind of follow all the various cool stuff I've been working on comics and coloring books and games, everything that has to do with conspiracy theories, uh, American culture, and what I uh, consider occult research. This is not the cat Lucifer though. Not the, not the cat in your, not, uh, no, it's not about not the, cat. the cat. It's about the actual <laughs> Luciferians that we were talking about a little bit earlier. Uh, as for this one, well, I guess we're, we're doing a call at Disney, but uh, this, I talk about sci-fi films, The Twilight Zone. There's some stuff on games. If you go to Patreon for a bit of support, 
They will find that at Podcastio Podcastius, where you can support this along with other podcasts. Okay, the uh, the midnight bell's about to strike, so I guess I'm gonna go on my train to work. Yep, go find sense. your pumpkin. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna take I'm gonna work in pumpkin. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. 